you grew up on a farm, uh, you knew that you should not name the farm animals, particularly the ones you were planning to eat. It's easier to enjoy your bacon than it's from an anonymous pig than from Scooter the pig. Naming him humanizes him. Uh, we've seen this recently at Ocean Springs. Carl the Rooster. Any of you have heard of Carl the Rooster from Ocean Springs? Carl had been wandering around downtown Ocean Springs for a couple of years, and he had kind of become an icon of the downtown area until he was killed maliciously by someone back in April. And the death of this rooster made national news. I read an article from the Washington Post about Ocean Springs and Carl the Rooster. And people from Ocean Springs were quoted as saying, Carl was, Carl was iconic and a pillar of the community. <laughs> that is humanizing uh, an animal. And a couple of weeks ago, they had a funeral parade through downtown Ocean Springs on behalf of Carl the Rooster. And the lady that, that killed Carl lost her job. Uh, so, very serious. If she were a farmer, and the rooster was anonymous, nobody would ever say a thing. Millions of roosters, I mean, millions of chickens every day are killed in the United States, but they didn't have names. They're not humanized. Uh, we do the opposite to human beings sometimes. We demonize them. We treat them as something other than human, something evil, especially those who have different viewpoints than we do. So yes, we live in angry times. It's us versus them. And that's the kind of thinking that Paul is instructing Timothy, who's been left in Ephesus, to help, uh, to, to lead the church there. This is the kind of thinking that Paul is instructing Timothy to help the church there get beyond. And that's what these verses today are speaking to us about. Ephesus was a major city in the Roman Empire. It was a very important city in, in the Roman Empire. And you can see the beginnings of the church there in Acts chapter 19. The church began with some Jewish converts. They were people who had experienced the baptism of John. And the only way that you could experience the baptism of John was, of course, to be in uh, Israel. And so these were Jews who had immigrated to, uh, to Ephesus. And they were the beginnings of the church there. And, of course, there were Gentile converts in the church there as well. So it was a, a mixed group. And you can see there in the events that transpired in Acts chapter 19 that a riot breaks out. There was a big temple to, uh, to, to Artemis, sometimes known as Diana. Uh, the temple of Diana was uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So there was a large group of people, Gentiles, who worshipped this goddess. And so there was a rather sharp religious divide between Christians in Ephesus and the community at large in this major city. In fact, they put forward a Jew to speak to a rioting group, and uh, they see that he's a Jew, and it makes them even more angry. So there was racial tension as well. But Paul's calling the Ephesians here, and us by extension, to care about, particularly to pray for people who are not like us. Not a member of our tribe, our group, our nation, our language, or our social standing. He calls us to think about and humbly pray for all categories of people. 
So I want to see two things from this passage today. First of all, the call that we are given here, the call God desires, expansive prayers for all people. And then secondly, I want to see the basis for that call, which flows out of the compassion, the call, the compassion God desires, as it says there in verse 4, for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, first, the call. God desires expansive prayers. I'm speaking of that from Brian Chapter. I thought that was a great uh, term to talk about prayers. Not just uh, small prayers, as our catechism talks about, but uh, as we say, uh, we're coming to a great king, large petitions with you bring. Uh, we are called to pray for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and people in positions of high authority, as well as beggars on the street. The first sentence, chapter, uh, verse 1, the first sentence has an important word in it that we need to notice. And this word is then. T-H-E-N, then. You think, well, now what in the world is important about the word then? First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, sometimes that word in the Greek is, is translated, therefore. And there's a saying, uh, I say it every so often, and I want you to remember it. As you read your Bibles, when you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to find out what it's there for. When you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to find out what it's there for. Then and therefore point you back to what was said before. So you always need to, to understand the statement that's being made after the therefore or the then. You have to look back the previous verses. Now, unfortunately, when the chapter divisions and the verses were added much later than the scriptures were written, uh, they divided chapter 1 and chapter 2 where they did. So in our minds, there's a break there. In fact, you know, I'm preaching on chapter 2, verse 1 here today. But it really does flow out of, of, of chapter 1. Um, Therefore, is a marker of result. In other words, what I'm about to say is based on what I just said. So, here's what Paul's saying. Uh, what I'm saying now in chapter 2 is the result of what I just told you in chapter 1. And what did he say in chapter 1? Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about, about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, that is, the good warfare, fighting the good fight of faith, holding fast to the faith, holding fast to a good conscience about things. By rejecting these things, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now chapter 2, verse 1 commands us to pray for all kinds of people because they tend to make shipwreck of their faith. We sing often uh, the hymn, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And there's a line in that hymn that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We all have this propensity to stray from the Lord. We've already, last week we saw in chapter 1 that there were false teachers there that Timothy was to address. False teachers were ready to lead people astray, even in the church. And then outside, the world, our flesh, the forces of evil, 
are leading believers and others into temptation and sin. We're all prone to wander from the Lord. And this says nothing about those outside the church. People are lost. People are struggling. We must pray for them and each other. Jesus said the exact same thing. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. So when you look out and you see the lost masses, there's the call is to pray. Pray that someone would tell them the good news about Jesus. Now Paul uh, in, in verse 1 tells us who to pray for. All people. Uh, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. It really says all men, and that's not being uh, sexist, it's all mankind, all humanity, so that's an appropriate one. But I think it helps us understand a little bit better uh, how Paul is expressing himself. For all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. When he says all people here, he's talking about uh, all classes or types of people, not just regular everyday people, who made up the church in Ephesus, but for kings as well. People you might not think about praying for. Well, they've got, a, they've got all the power. They're in seats of authority. They have no needs. They're kings and queens. So why do they need our prayers? See, but the call here is to have those expansive prayers because God's kingdom is going to have men and women from every language, every people group, every nation, according to the scriptures. There will be people of every race and social position. There will be slaves and kings in the, in the kingdom of God. The time of the, in the, the history of the church, in the, in the New Testament here, the gospel had just been recently spreading throughout the Mediterranean and, and down into northern Africa. And there probably were not too many people in high places who had embraced the gospel yet. And Paul calls them to think big about the expansion of Christ's kingdom, to have expansive prayers. John Calvin explains it this way. He says, The apostle simply means, here in chapter 2, first few verses, that there is no people and no rank in the world that is excluded from salvation because God wishes that the gospel should be proclaimed to all without exception. Now the preaching of the gospel gives life, and hence he justly concludes that God invites all equally to partake salvation. But the present discourse relates to classes of men and not to individual persons, for his sole object is to include in this number princes and foreign nations. That God wishes the doctrine of salvation to be enjoyed by them as well as others is evident from the passages already quoted and from other passages of a similar nature. Not without good reason was it said in Psalm 2, Now kings understand. And again in the same Psalm, 
I will give thee the Gentiles for an inheritance, and the ends of the earth for a possession. So it's not just Jews, it's not just normal everyday people, it's kings and Gentiles as well that are involved in the gospel message and having the message proclaimed to them. And here's the best part. In a word, Paul intended to show that it is our duty to consider not what kind of persons the princes at that time were, but what God wished them to be. As we think about the people that we don't like, uh, you know, it is our duty to, consent, to consider not what kind of people they are, what positions they hold, uh, what their opinions might be, who they vote for. No, we are to consider what God wishes them to be. What does God wish our president to be? What does God wish the vice president to be? What does God wish uh, the Queen of England to be? What does God wish every human being to be? Is that our perspective as we think about other humans, or do we demonize them? Calvin goes on. Now the duty arising out of that love, which we owe to our neighbor, is to be eager and to do our endeavor for the salvation of all whom God includes in his calling. God has commanded that the gospel be proclaimed to every tongue, tribe, and nation, every person. So it is our duty to endeavor to fulfill that and to testify this by godly prayers. To pray. That's the first thing that Paul tells us to do. Maybe we're not the greatest evangelists in the world, but we can pray for others. So we pray. And not just for people like us. Notice that in verse 7, Paul is making this point. Uh, he, he mentions his calling to the Gentiles. Puts an exclamation point on it. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. You know, they're going to be astounded by this information. And think, it's not true. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well all people. Now, when you pray for someone, you pray habitually for someone, it's hard to hate them. Uh, you can't come uh, bringing someone before the throne of grace, truly, and asking God to have compassion on them and to save them, to open their eyes, uh, to, to help them to see Christ and to know Christ. Uh, that's not a hateful act. That's a loving act. It's hard to hate someone and pray for them at the same time. But we must pray with humility, not with the attitude like, well, these, these filthy heathens who are ignorant, they need to know what I know. Uh, I, I need to tell them the truth, and they need to come to understand what I understand. That was not Paul's attitude, and we see that. We see the humility that Paul had, and, and this command flowed out of, of his humble gratitude for how God had saved him. Look back at verse 12 in chapter 1. He's, he's, this is a doxology. He's so full of gratitude and love for the Lord. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
He's the chief of sinners, he says. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst sinner, as the one who persecuted the church, as the one who killed Christians, who tried to stamp the church out from the earth, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's just saying, if he can do it for me, he can do it for anybody. If he can save me, the chief of sinners, he can save anybody. You are not beyond the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither is anybody else in this world not the people that you hate the most. Not the people on the other side of the political aisle. Jesus Christ can save anybody. They're not beyond his power to save. Our attitude should not be uh, proud or arrogant, but just praying like a beggar who has found bread, telling other beggars where to find it. We're pointing them to Jesus, the one who has mercy, who has given us mercy. Because we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, it was given to us by God's grace and His mercy and His mercy alone. So, we are to pray, expansive prayers for all kinds of people, especially our enemies, as Jesus and Paul and others in the Scriptures tell us. Well, the basis of all this, secondly, is God's compassion. And I'll try to be quick about this. Verse 4 says that it is God's desire for all people, all men is the word there, all humanity, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, uh, this is all types of people, all groups of people, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, as Revelation tells us. People from every people group will be in heaven. Now, a couple of false views to, to uh, stick the balloon and pop. Number one, this idea where people draw a distinction between the Old Testament God of wrath and the New Testament God of love, as if there's two different gods. But we don't want to pay attention to the God of the Old Testament because it's all about God's wrath there in the Old Testament. We don't like that. Well, that's false. Uh, just a couple of examples. Ezekiel 18.23 Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Ezekiel 33.11 Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. This morning's call to worship, 145, this is why I chose it. Verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Verse 13, the Lord is faithful in all his words, and kind in all of his works. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, kind in all his works. And I can literally list hundreds of Old Testament passages that speak of God's kindness, compassion, his mercy, his love, his goodness, and his patience. Yes, he's righteous and just and holy, and he does punish the wicked, but he's patient. You remember when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15? God told him what's going to happen. You're going to have you're going to have the offspring. They're going to become a great nation, but your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not there and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And it says, after those 400 years are over, it says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation 
for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the Amorites were the people who were living in the promised land in the land of Canaan. We saw that in Joshua. They were child sacrifices. They did all kinds of abominations. But God is saying, you're not gonna, your people aren't going to get to the promised land for 400 years because their sin is not yet complete. He's being patient with them. He's giving them an opportunity to change and repent. But of course they don't. And Israel goes and is the instrument of God's justice against their abominations. So God is patient throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Second Peter 3, you know, Jesus' return is much on the minds and lips of, of people these days for good reason. There are wars going on, as the Bible says there would be. There are signs going on. 2 Peter 3, 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of returning, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's desires for us, everyone, to turn to him, to not die wicked. And we see this demonstrated for us here. God didn't, isn't just saying these things, he did something to show his great love. The demonstration of his compassion was on the cross. This brings us to the second false teaching that's out there that people talk about. And that is that God the Father is a God of wrath and Jesus the Son of God had to appease the Father somehow. Uh, God was ready to destroy everybody and Jesus steps in and he says, No, uh, I'll make a sacrifice to appease your wrath. Well, that's, that goes against the, the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God the Father loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves his world that he's created. He loves the people that he has created. And he calls all of us to repent and turn to him. And he shows this great love in Jesus in verse 5. There is one God. There's no other God. Diana or Artemis wasn't a God. None of the gods of this world are, are true gods. There's one God, and there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, a mediator is one who brings together parties who are out of communication and who are alienated from one another. They're estranged, or they're at war with each other. And that's where we are with God as human beings. The mediator must have links with both sides, so as to identify and maintain the interests of both, and represent each to the other on the basis of goodwill. That's what Jesus did. He was God and man. He was fully human, and fully divine. He was a prophet, a priest, and a king. That's his three offices. Now, a prophet is someone who represented God to the people. He spoke on behalf of God and gave messages to the people. So that's God to the people. A priest represented the people to God. So it's the opposite. A priest brought the sacrifices into the temple on behalf of the people of God and sacrificed it there. Jesus is a prophet and priest. He represents God to us and us to God. He's the mediator between God and man. And there is no way for us to be in a right relationship with God 
unless it's through Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. He made himself a ransom. He paid the penalty so that we could be free. He paid the penalty for sin. And it was gracious. It's not something that we earned or we deserved. God himself opened our eyes and hearts to receive this great work on our behalf that we might be accepted by God. And that's true of every human being that turns to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to all here today be struck like Paul with God's great compassion that you have experienced and that he shows to others. Now, how do we do that? How do we share this compassion with others? A lot of people say, well, I'm not a great evangelist. I don't know how to, how to speak or get nervous about sharing Jesus with others. I say, don't worry about what to say. God gave you one mouth and two ears. Listen to people. Listen to people. People are hurting. People have problems. Everybody's got problems. I have problems. You have problems. We all have problems. Everybody thinks they're the only person with the problems that they have. That's not true. We all have similar problems. I'm a pastor. I know. Many of you have told me your problems. And it's not shocking to me because I've heard everybody's problems and you'd be surprised at how many people are struggling with what you're struggling with. People have problems. And, and if we just ask and say, we take an interest in their lives, they will share their problems with us. And what we can do, we can say, you know what, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Which is what we're called to do here in this passage. To pray for others. To listen and to pray. And then we can share, hey, uh, Jesus has helped me in this way with that problem. So don't worry about so much what to say, but listen to people. Be interested in their story and, and pray for them. And pray for the world as well. Now we've been looking at this First Timothy. The reason that we're studying this is that we're going through officer elections. We're going through some changes in our church. We're seeking to grow as a church. And First Timothy is a great book to teach us how to be more biblical church. And so the thing that we need to take away as a church today is that we need to be a praying church, a church that prays expansive prayers for all people. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that we would all experience uh, your grace and mercy today. Father, grant us repentance and help us to call upon you to say, Lord, we are sinners and we need your forgiveness. We can't save ourselves, and we know that if we persist in our wickedness, that we won't be saved. So, Lord, we pray that you would save us, and we pray that you would heal us and help us. Help us to be those who lift up prayers and have your compassion on others, and pray for them, and, and listen to them, and share Jesus with them. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and caring for us and for giving us your word that reminds us that Jesus Christ is our mediator, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.